Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-360 of the Run Run Live podcast. This is Chris, your host. That's 360 podcasts out there over the past, I don't know, eight or nine years. Kind of amazing. It's been a while since I rejiggered the format. Maybe it's time for some fashionable new skins or something. And I'd like to do more, but there just isn't much money in yak farming. There's there's plenty of money in being a hitman, but I have to keep that in secret offshore bank accounts. So today, we have a longish interview with Dan Weston, who is one of our friends from the UK. And we talked through his running adventures. And then in section one, I've got a piece on some of the finer nuances of hill repeats. In section two, I've got a thoughtful piece on hope that has been kicking around in my brain for a decade or so, so I'm glad I I got to it. It made itself known. It came into the light. I published this piece uh, earlier in the week on LinkedIn, experimenting with the LinkedIn publishing platform. I kind of like it. By the way, kudos to those of you who hunted me down on LinkedIn after I posted that piece about setting up your profile a couple of episodes back. I also published another piece on grit. I'm reading that book by Angela Duckworth, and I really like it. I would recommend it. Very good book. Pulls together many of the concepts we've talked about here, and frankly, a very appropriate read for endurance sports aficionados, grit. So how's my training been? Am I still battling injuries? I know I left you hanging. I had some knee pain and some foot pain and a couple of weeks of light running, right? Well, the day after we last talked, I went out and hit a hilly 18-miler with my buddies and felt great. And coach has been beating the crap out of me, but I'm hanging strong. He gave me a 13-mile step-up run with 50 minutes of it in zone 4-5 that I really struggled with. He gave me these hill repeats that I'm going to share with you today. Then last Sunday, I knocked off another hilly 19-miler on my own in around 2.45-ish. Then Tuesday of this week, he damn near killed me with a set of 7 by 7 
seven-minute intervals, but I'm getting it done, and nothing hurts particularly, <laughs> except the, the the sheer magnitude of fatigue. Uh, six weeks out from Boston, so this is the hard part, the dark place. you got to expect it. For the remainder of this week, he's got me doing another set of hill repeats, and then uh, Tempo 14 Miler with the middle 10 miles at faster than race pace. So, yeah, that'll take me about two hours on Sunday morning. The good stuff! I've been trying out, like I said, different guided meditations on YouTube as part of my morning routine. And, like I said, you can search for meditation for dot dot dot, fill in the blank, and you will find several. You can type in meditation for sleep, meditation for studying, for energy, for anxiety, for dead possums, anything, and you'll get some results on YouTube. Some are better than others, and most of these are just some form of breathing meditation. Some have various relaxation and visualization techniques, but some are actually very close to hypnosis, (laughs) so you have to be careful. They will do that thing where they talk you into a meditative state, and then they do the old, you are going down an elevator, deeper and deeper, when I count to three, you know, that sort of thing. Just be careful, because in this state, you're very susceptible to suggestions. Like I said, it's hard for me to meditate, because Buddy the Wonder Dog hates meditation, and he will invariably start his barking and whining, When I'm deep in a meditative state, he hates meditation. You know, it's funny. I noticed I've been buying a lot of extra dog treats recently and going for a lot of walks. Hmm. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Anatomy of a Hill Repeat You'll often hear people talking about hill workouts. It sounds like there's one monolithic thing called a hill workout. There are many nuances to hill workouts. And I'll share one with you today and go a bit deeper so you can practice. This particular type of hill workout I'm going to call a hill repeat or alternatively a short hill tempo workout. Coaches love hill workouts. Why? Because you can get a lot of benefit from a hill workout, and it is quite efficient. Coaches like to say that hill workouts are speed work in disguise because they have the same anaerobic and strength benefits of a hard speed workout at the track. Hill workouts also focus your form. It's hard to heel strike when you're running uphill at tempo pace. Running uphill almost forces you into good running form. And where do you put these hill workouts into your training plan? Well, typically you'll save these for the last third of your plan where you're building race-specific strength. At this point, you've already got that base fitness and you're working on leg strength, hard efforts, and recovery. Race-specific stuff. Even more so if your target race has some hills in it. And this takes the same slot as a speed workout if you're working with a weekly cycle. 
I mean, for me, it's typically going to fall into one of the hard weeks or build weeks coming up to a race. In an advanced plan, for example, you may be doing three hard workouts in that week. The first or last, depending on how you're accounting, is that weekend long run. The second would be some sort of longer tempo run, like a step-up run. And the third would be the strength or speed or hill workout with recovery runs or cross-training on the in-between days. For less intense beginner schedules, less intense runners, you might have the long run and then just one hard workout during that week somewhere. It really depends on where you are, what you're capable of, what your goals are. As usual, I would recommend consulting a coach to set up your plan if you don't know what you're doing. There are different types of hill workouts, and the simplest is just to go out and run a hilly course, which pretty much describes every run here in New England. Then there are dedicated hill workouts, and the dedicated hill workouts fall somewhere in a four-box matrix of distance and intensity. Length of the repeat in time or distance on one dimension, and intensity of the effort on the other dimension. And let's talk about the intensity first. You can drop intensity into really two buckets. And the first bucket I call a hill charge. And the second I'll call a hill repeat. And this is where the nuance comes in. All hill workouts are intense, but some are more intense than others. It really comes down to what you're trying to accomplish. If you're focused purely on anaerobic training and strength, then you may want to do the hill charge. And the hill charge means you're giving 100% effort to each hill repetition. When you get to the top of that hill charge, you're coughing up blood. Metaphorically, if you're really coughing up blood, you should see a doctor because you might be a consumptive character in a Victorian novel. The nuance here is that hill charges are all about effort, not so much about form and mechanics. I tend to do these on steeper hills because that makes them that much harder. And these are perfectly good workouts late in a training cycle, especially for a race you know has some scary steep hills. Just be careful with these because the intensity makes injury much more likely. Now the hill repeat that I'm going to talk about here, on the other hand is still a hard workout, but instead of 100%, you're going 80-85% effort and focusing on the form and the mechanics. When you get to the top, you're working hard, but you're not dying. That's the version I'm going to focus on in this piece. So while the hill charge is about beating yourself into shape, the intent of the hill repeat is to practice hill form, hill effort, and hill recovery. And it's more about mastery than physical abuse. It's about practice. It's about efficiency of effort. And that's the nuance. And the other side of the four-box matrix is distance or duration. There are short, medium, and long versions of these hill workouts. Starting early in the cycle, it might only be 30 seconds long, then progress to 60 seconds, and then to 90 seconds. And then there's a final longer version that I run that is around a half a mile or 800 meters. And so you're going to start with the shorter versions and work up to the longer. And with those, those intense hill charges, you might only do four or five or six in a set. That's a good set. With a hill repeat, you're going to do 10 or more in a set. 
For the repeat, you need to find a hill. You can do these on a treadmill with a 4 to 5% grade, but I would recommend doing them outside on a shallow 4 to 5% grade hill. So this means maybe 15 to 20 feet of elevation gain for a 30-second hill repeat. Not too steep. For you folks in Florida or Kansas, this is the same steepness as a typical on-ramp or a bridge. In a perfect world, this hill is 15 or 20 minutes from your house. So this way you can warm up for a mile or so before you get to the hill. And in a perfect world, this hill should be about 800 meters in length. I have the great fortune to have such a hill a mile and a half from my door. I call it my heartbreak hill because it has a similar topography to the hill at the 20-mile mark of the Boston Marathon. About 200 or so feet of rolling gain over about a half a mile. I can do all these different durations and distances on this one hill. So you find this hill and you run your 10 to 20 minute warm up. You get to the base of the hill and carry a water bottle or some sort of uh, liquids with you so you can get a drink between reps. It really helps. And you find a place to stash your bottle where you can get to it between repeats. And that should be, you know, close to the bottom of the base of the hill where you'll start your your rep. A little home base to launch your hill repeats from. And before you start, look around at the base of the hill to see where you can keep track of the repetitions. You don't want to keep track of the number of reps in your head. You'll forget midway through, guaranteed, and then you've got to make that choice of either doing too many or doing too few. And I always end up doing too many. One good way to keep track if there's sand or dirt or even snow is to scratch tally marks. You can carry a bit of chalk or use a sharp rock. You simply scratch a new tally mark each time you return to the base of the hill. And if you can't do that, use pebbles or sticks or anything else that you can line up to mark up each new rep. So it's fun too, a bit of a gamification for the hard workout. And I would recommend not programming these workouts into your watch. It's perfectly fine to wear your Garmin to keep track of your pace, your elevation, your heart rate, but you don't want to be messing with it during the workout itself. You want to focus on the workout and not be distracted. So what I will do is time the first rep of the workout. Let's say it's a 30-second rep. You start that rep at a milestone point at the base of the hill, like a pole or a tree or a rock, anything recognizable, and this will be your starting point. Set your watch. You let it get to an easy math point, a round number, for example, 1530. And then you start that repeat. You run that rep and keep an eye on the watch. And when you hit that, in this case, 16, you'll note the location where you where that time happened. And then you'll mark that location, that point on the road or the trail. And that's the milestone for the end of your rep. You can use a stick, a rock, a mailbox, a piece of trash, or a dead possum, just as long as it's visible from a few feet away. If you mark the start and the end like this, the first time, then you don't have to look at your watch anymore. You can focus on the workout. So how do you run the rep? Well, you're focusing on form during effort. You're going to execute these at a consistent 80 to 85% effort level throughout the rep 
This is like a yeah, 5K-ish level effort. For example, my current target marathon race pace is around an eight-minute mile, and I was in the 6.30 to 7-minute range, uh, minutes per mile on these, so moving along at a good clip, but not all out. And this is for those shorter reps, the 30, 60, 90 seconds ones. You can push pretty hard and hold those pace without breaking form. For a half or an 800-meter rep, you probably need to ease into it more. So when I start the rep, my heart rate is typically in zone two or zone one. And when I hit the top, my heart rate is in 4.5 or a little bit higher. So that's the kind of effort level milestone. And when you pass that end milestone in your rep, to finish the rep, you drop into a jog to recover and you jog back down the hill to your base camp. Once in your base camp, you scratch off a tally mark, take a drink, let your heart rate come back down to two or one if it hasn't yet, jog back to the start milestone and hit it again and keep doing that. And I cannot overemphasize that while this is a hard workout, the point of this workout is not effort. The point is form and mechanics practice. As you accelerate into the hill, focus on all those good form habits that you need to practice. Light, fast turnover, off the front to midsole, your feet are hitting the ground, shouldn't make any noise, leaning forward at the ankles, pushing your hips forward, running tall with your shoulders and your chin high, hands high, loose, close to the chest, minimal body rotation, all those good things, and smile. It's a privilege and a gift to be able to do this hill repeat. Have some gratitude. Smile. Makes it easier. Don't slouch into the hill. Don't lean into the hill. Don't do battle with the hill. Once you have your good form, you can focus on the finer points of running uphill. Push those hips forward. Notice your knee lift and how you can use your knee lift to pull yourself up the hill. Think about running with your core muscles as you do this. Feel the connections from the core to the knees, using those ab and core muscles to pull the strings of your legs up the hill. These repeats will start to get hard towards the end of the rep, and the last three or so reps may be a bit more difficult. And as you get tired, don't compensate by working harder. You're practicing form. Compensate by really working that form, holding it clean and pulling up the hill with your core. This is the practice. You do get a good physical workout running a set of 10 or so hill repeats. That's a given. But the real benefit is adding another tool, another discipline to your running repertoire. When you're in a race, you'll be able to use this practiced form to flow through the hills without them having a deleterious effect on you. You'll see the hill, and since you practice this, your body and subconscious will say, hey, a hill, we know how to do this and everything will click into place. If you should find yourself struggling on a hill, you can run down this form checklist and remember the practice and tighten things and carry on. That's why you should practice hill repeats. Practice leads to mastery. And now for today's featured interview. Hey, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Yeah. Thanks. Hanging in there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So give us the 200 words. Okay, yeah. So the 200 words on who I am and what I do. Well, I live in the UK, in Wales, in North Wales, in a town called Wrexham. 37 years old. I'm married with two children. I'm a keen runner. I work 
in an office as a commercial underwriter. Hmm. I do farm insurance. Hmm. So you spend so a lot you, of time sitting, wanna, sitting in a chair. I do, yeah. Yeah. People wonder why I stand up every hour with um to stretch my legs. Yeah. Because um with all the running I do, my legs do tend to seize up, then I have to stand up and I have to say, Oh my legs, I need to stretch them out. But people seem to be able to sit in my office for hours and hours and hours without thinking about getting up to walk around, especially now that we've gone paperless, there's not even an excuse to walk to the printer. I know. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, with me doing farm insurance, I could do you a quote for your uh, yak farm. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a theme on your podcast, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. The thing was, when I started doing it, there was always that fear that you didn't really want people to be able to triangulate onto who you actually were and where you lived and what you did. So when I first started <laughs> doing it, we uh, threw in a little misdirection just to make sure everybody knew. That the Chris, yeah. the Chris they were hearing was an avatar and not a real person. So yeah, uh, and plus it's just my odd sense of humor. Yeah. It's actually quite British, isn't it? <laughs> hey, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> to begin with, I was trying to work out your sense of humor, and I, and I think for the first podcast you mentioned it, and then the next one, I was thinking this doesn't fit in. <laughs> he's, he's, it's not. He can't be a yak farmer where he lives. <laughs> yes, I. I started running about 10 years ago when I was the age of 26, and uh, I ran mostly on the roads, road running. I still do a lot of road races, but then I did the usual thing of moving up. I started with 5Ks, and a 10K, then a half marathon, then a marathon. And then one day I just thought, oh, I will give ultra running a go. And my first ultra race, I came first, and I thought, well, I must be good at this. And that was about three or four years ago and since then I've been competitive at ultra running and last year I was in the UK National 100k championships and managed to come second. Wow that's awesome. Oh, what's the second place 100k time? I did it in seven hours 11. Yeah yeah that's smoking. Yep, that's... I was hoping for seven hours Yeah, you know, when I got up that morning it was a bit windy so I just uh, had a look a few comparisons with the wind because there's these comparison charts on the website i think jack daniels goes into it a little bit you put in your time and the wind speed and it says you should do it in this time as a comparison and i thought yeah i need to add on about 10 minutes so i added on about 10 minutes to seven hours and it that was about right that's what i did yeah it's good pace so you didn't start running until you were 26 so you didn't run in school no. And you're a seven hour ish 100K guy, and you said you're a 230 ish marathoner? Yeah, that's right. So you uh, stepped into the sport late in life and you're having that kind of uh, success? That's pretty amazing. What do you attribute that to? I'm not too sure, but I th- when I was younger, my dad was uh, a very keen runner. Yeah. And I admired his running, and I thought he was Superman. I thought he could uh, win any race. Well, he did win a lot of races, and I used to go to the races with him on the weekends and just watch him. And when I was about 16, I did take up running for a year just to try and beat him, but I never did. <laughs> mm. I've always been quite fit. I grew up on a country estate. I was I played outside quite a lot as a child, climbing trees, making dens. Then I always had at the back of my mind that I would like to be a runner one day. But I think it took me until the age of 26 to finally sort things out in my life. Because when you're younger, you know, you've got your education, you've got a job, you get married, you've got 
lots of things to sort of sort out. And I think a lot of people try to fit in running when really they're too busy. And I thought at the age of 25, I just thought, right, I think I'll take up running now. It's about time. <laughs> yeah, but without some prior experience, a lot of people will take up running and they'll start from a position of not knowing how to run and not believing they can. So I see these folks who are 10, 11, 14, 15 minute milers and they say, well, that's as fast as I can go. And I say, how do you know, right? I mean, the, the bell curve for your average human, I think, your average male like us, your bell curve is going to be in the three hour range, right? In the center. Yeah. So it's this combination of having some physical talent. You have to have that max VO2 ability to get down into those speeds, right? So you have to have some physical talent. You have to be able to train at a level to get to those speeds because you can't just show up and run those those kind of times, right? You have to train for it, yeah. train very seriously. And the third thing is you have to believe you can do it. So, I mean, how did you find all those things? I mean, you have some natural talent, but how did you find the training and the belief in yourself to do it? I think uh, I kept myself quite fit through rollerblading. I, for about three or four years before I started running, I did quite a lot of rollerblading. And you have to be very fit to do that. I did it on skate parks, so on half sure. pipes and on ramps. And your legs have to be very strong to pump on the ramps to get yourself quite high. And I used to do that four, five times a week. And I think that got my legs very strong. I fell right. over quite a lot because I was always trying new tricks and stuff. So right. I think and it strengthened my knees strengthened my knees because I was falling on my knees and <laughs> when I first went into running I think I saw the times that my dad was doing and I just thought yeah I could do those times and well to begin with for the first half year I wasn't very good at all do a 10k in about 45 50 minutes when I first started running I used to call my dad and give him my race times and I can remember I'd only been running for about four months and I did this 10 miler and I did it in I think 60 Five sixty-six minutes or 67 minutes yeah i called him quite excited i said i said oh dad i did this 10 mile race and he said did you do it in under the hour <laughs> <laughs> i said i said oh no you're slower than that <laughs> but he didn't say to be mean he, he said it because when he was running he was running in the 80s there were hundreds of people in Wrexham that could do 10 miles in under the hour right. and when i used to go and watch him in these races i used to watch I can remember a local 10K. I think I went and watched and people were coming in in half an hour, 31 minutes. And uh, it's just that expectation. I think I had a mindset of seeing when I was younger, these past runners. And that was, if you were a runner, they were the sort of times that you had to do. So Right. It's, it's a different generation. And I, I'm the same way, right? And when I started running, there's a certain expectation, right? That you're running at this level and that's what people do. It's not because you think it is or it isn't. It's just that's what you're used to, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm from the same generation. And the, so I get the impression that the new generation of sort of casual runners don't have that expectation. And I think sometimes they miss an opportunity because they just don't have the belief system. And I'm not saying everybody needs to. I'm just saying you might be missing an opportunity just because you don't have the belief system. Yeah. And when I first started to run it 11 years ago, I joined the same running club that my dad was a member of for 20 odd years. And then I entered the same leagues that he did. So there's this local road running league that runs every winter called the Borders League. It's a league of seven races and you only get 
club runners doing it. You don't get new runners. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. We have so some I, of those I, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I joined at the cross country league as well. And you're only allowed in the cross country league if you were a club runner. And 11 years ago, even over the last decade, it's changed quite a bit because 11 years ago, you were only a member of our Wrexham Athletics Club if you were a good runner. And lots of people wouldn't join because of the mentality that they would think that if they joined the club, they'd have to be good. But it has changed now. We do have a lot of runners who come just to keep fit and it's more inclusive now, which I think is, is better. It's good that it's more inclusive. But Yeah, I, I do too. I, I do too. Yeah. I work really hard not to scare away people from the sport. And I have a club as well that I run with, and I don't run with them a lot just because I'm scary to a lot of the new runners, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean scary because you're running fast? No, just because I'll show up and say, okay, I'm doing a seven-mile tempo run today. And... Ah, uh, yes, yes. Ah, oh, well, I showed up to do a 5K at a 15-minute mile. Well, okay, that's cool, but... <laughs> so, I want to have donuts and coffees with those folks, but I'm scary when you show up. And we actually changed that in my club to make sure that we had different distances and different times because people were getting scared off so we could be yeah. more, more inclusive. Yeah, yeah, so it's great. What does your training look like? You a six, seven-day-a-week guy and... Yeah, I do too much, really. I always have done. <laughs> That's my downfall. Seven days a week, I rarely take a day off. And then two or three days a week, I double up, which is why I think I'm much better at ultra running than I am at the shorter distances, because I've just built up a lot of slow twitch fibers. But I do change my training as well, because I've realized over the years that I need a stimulus. Right. And I don't really get stimulus unless I change something. Very early on in my running, I read the Jack Daniels coaching book and I started to just use his programs. And his programs are quite good because they break it up into the classic blocks, four to six weeks doing foundational right. and intervention. See, see, I can tell you're an actuary, so I can tell you're one of those numbers guys, one of those runners with the, uh, yeah. likes the numbers. And Daniel's book is great for that. It's full of formulas. Yeah, I've got my own spreadsheets work, but like I said before, working out the wind speed. Yeah. Um, if I go into a race and I'm comparing it to last year, I look at the conditions of the day. I like to compare my yeah. times. Yeah. No, I get it. That's a <laughs> personality type that is attracted to distance running because of the fun with the numbers, right? So that's part of it, part of the stuff that you enjoy. I get it. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and then also there's a book called Advanced Marathoning. I'm not sure. I think it's more of a UK thing have you heard of um fitzinger and Doug- douglas oh, no, yeah yeah we know fitzinger sure oh right and douglas yeah so in the last five years i've been using plans out of that book because it's better suited to when i can fit in my training because they do their programs have got more progression runs in right and progressions are easier for me to do on my run commute because the jack daniels he has lots of tempo and if i'm doing tempo work i'm running quite fast and if there's traffic in the way or people walking on the pavements um it's very difficult to keep your interval going and you're forever stopping the garmin and i just found it doing a progression run and not doing so many intervals suited my uh day-to-day running commute and suits the conditions so that's what my training looks like and interestingly though i listen to quite a lot of podcasts when i'm running and i've been listening to endurance planet a a bit and that talks about the phil maffetone method the maf right so I've been thinking about 
doing that and in December. That'll give you some new numbers to play with, right? So that's what I do now. I do heart rate training, which is, it's not new. It's um, it's what the New Zealanders did in the 70s and 80s. Um, And Mapitone sort of picked that up and came up with his. But uh, that'll give you some new numbers to play with, right? And especially as you get older and you start to not being able to rely on your paces, the heart rate training gives you the effort without giving you the paces. So Yeah, um, it does, yeah. So I've been running map to math over the last two months, which has been a change to my training, which is good because I can feel my body reacting differently. And at the moment, I'm just collecting the data and just tweaking things because I'm just trying to find the right balance to the quality, the number of miles I do at math. Because I'm unusual. I've been finding math quite hard. I'm only able to do 40 miles a week at that pace because Hmm. 180 miles my age is 143. If I go out and run 143 beats per minute, that is about, well, depending on the conditions, on a flat track, um, my math test was at 5.45. Yeah, so you're, the math is wrong for you. I think you're doing it the wrong way. Because if it, that 143 is supposed to be a zone 2 or a, a low zone, mm. then you're probably looking at in the 120s. You should be doing yeah. that. Right. You should be doing your aerobic base training in the 120s. What's your resting heart rate? Like a 30 something, 40? Yeah, it's usually I don't measure it that often, but it's about 40. Yeah. So for me, I have the same time of day. Yeah, Yeah. I have the same low heart rate. My zone two starts at like 120 something. And when I'm running, let's say uh, 10K pace, that's going to be so zone three is going to start in the high 120s. So a 143 for me is basically 10K race pace. Yeah, yeah. Right? So a 150 is all out, right? And a 180, I'm dropping dead. Yeah. So so if you think you're doing aerobic training at that heart rate, you're not. You're doing just all tempo work. Yeah. And the point of aerobic or heart rate training is to build the aerobic base. So then when you lay the race pace on top of it, the intervals and the step-up runs and progression runs, you have this big base to lay those on top of. And those become more race tuning versus training. It is interesting thinking about all of this because I spoke to Zach Bitter, um, who is a very good ultra runner in the US. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He holds the, uh, the world record for 12 hours. For 12 hours, and, okay. Yeah, uh, I think it's 101 miles or 102 miles, which is just awesome. It's unbelievable. And I think he also holds the American record for 100 miles. And he's, for the last year, or well, maybe the last half year, he's been running to the math method as well. Yeah. I've been bouncing off some ideas with him, and he suggested, first of all, that I lower my heart rate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I did, and then um, I think I've found a pace now that I'm comfortable at, but I still uh, find it quite hard to do 40, 50 miles. So, at the moment, I'm just building it up slowly to see where that stress point is. So you don't want to do the 180 minus because that doesn't work for people who as fit as us. You know, that yeah. typically doesn't work for low heart rate people. You got to build it up the other way, which is look at your max heart rate. So when you're doing a 1600 on the track, what's that heart rate, right? Yeah. And then work backwards from there because I'll bet if you were to go warm up and do a hard 1600, I bet you're... That 1600 heart rate is in the 150s. Yeah, you're right, it would be. So yeah. your heart rate seems very similar to mine. So that puts you, if you're actually doing aerobic training, it's going to be down in the 120s. And 140 yeah. is basically a race base. So what they're looking for, the ultra guys, is they're looking to stay below the aerobic threshold 
but still get some speed, right? So yeah. how fast can you go and not dip into your lactic threshold? So that's what they're doing. That's why they do a lot of the low heart rate base training to build up that base so they can eventually go faster for over longer distances, right? It's like a Yeah, it's interesting. So tell me your Gobi Desert story real quickly. Oh, right, yes. Last year when I did that 100K, the qualifying time to get onto the GB team for the World 100K Championships was 7 hours 15. That's what I thought it was. But what I didn't realize is that the committee review it. And unfortunately, they reviewed it after I did the race. So I was based the 7.15 I got from last year. So they reviewed it afterwards and they lowered it to seven hours. Hmm. So I was obviously disappointed because I wasn't going to get onto the GB team. That was my goal for last year. So I was a bit disappointed with that. But one of the people on the committee, he watched me do that Rex, and he was very impressed because I was quite, well, I was very consistent. So he knew that I was a good runner. So somebody over in China wrote to him and said, can you send some people from GB who are really good? Because we've got this race we're trying to promote over in China. And it's our first race that is IAU certified, you know, the International Association of Ultra Running. So then he contacted me and said, do you want to go? So I got permission off the other half <laughs> and I wrote from, to him and from said, your, yeah. from your board of directors. Yeah. <laughs> from my wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I said yes. And then it took quite a, a while to sort out the visa and the booking the planes and everything. And for a long time, I thought, Oh, it's just too hard. I'm not going to be able to go. But anyway, I sorted it all out in the end. Yes. Then I went in September last year. I just knew in my mind that I could complete the race, even though it was all on sand. I hadn't trained on sand or I've not run in the desert before and I've not trained in heat. I just had read other people's experiences and I spoke to other people that had done Marathon de Sables and spoken to other people that had done the Gobi. There's another Gobi ultra race, which is 400 kilometers, I think. The stage race. Yeah, the stage race. A lot of those people had also said, Oh, I hadn't trained on sand or heat trains, just my fitness carried me through. So I thought, right, I'll do the same thing. And I trained the same way as I would for an ultra. I went over there. It was a very difficult race, but it was difficult for everyone. Only, I think only about 25% of people finished. A lot of people dropped out because of the heat and because of the, uh, just the difficulty of running on the sand dunes. But it was an amazing experience. And I got to meet Zach Bitter over there as well. Because uh, he was staying at the same hotel as well. He's a very experienced guy and he really, really knows a lot about uh, training and nutrition and diet. Sure, and, yeah. And everything. So, but the race it, itself, I'm not sure if you want me to go into details of no, what it was it's like just, um, today. <laughs> it sounds like a very uh, interesting environment where you're having to parachute yourself out of uh, running in the Wales countryside up in Wrexham to running across the desert. The Gobi Desert would seem to me like it's a big uh, culture shock for you. Yeah, it was. It was so dry. Obviously, it's dry in a desert, but I was surprised at how dry it was. It, it felt like I could spit and the spit wouldn't reach the ground. Just dry it before it hit ground. And the sand was very unusual in parts. It was like a powder. And I'd not come across that before in my life, seeing sand that was like an ash. Yeah, and it gets into everything, right? It does, yeah. I did invest in a good pair of um, gaiters. I sent my shoes off to a company to get uh, Velcro stitched at the bottom. Have you heard mm. of people doing this before? Yeah. So I got mm. the Velcro professionally stitched to the bottom, 
and then I got the other side of the Velcro stitched onto the bottom of my gaiters. Then I pressed that down onto the shoe, and that kept the sand out. Well, I did get some blisters. I don't think it would have been as bad as it would have been, because at the end of the day, I could see other people's feet, and they were just black with sand, but my feet were, were clean. That really helped, having those gaiters. It was just really dry, and it made me laugh, because at the aid stations, they had crackers, loads and loads of crackers, which um, made me no. think... Yeah. <laughs> it made me think, why has it got crackers when everything's so dry? We need something wet. So I ended up coming seventh in that, which um, I was very pleased with because when I turned up at the hotel, I'd realised the organisers had written to every country. It felt like every country in the world and every country had sent their sent good ultra runners out to the place. There were good Kenyans there. There were Ooh. two really good Kenyans. I, I was speaking to them. I was trying to chat to everybody because to me it was a lifetime experience and I hadn't been abroad to run before. So I got chatting to these Kenyans and they said, oh, yes, we can do a 211 marathon and things. And Yeah, well, everybody know, can in Kenya, right? <laughs> yeah, even if they don't run, they can knock one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sounds like a pretty good adventure. You planning to have more adventures like that in the, uh, the future? What's the future hold for you, Dan? The next year, I'd like to run for Great Britain on the 100K team because it's not on this year. It's on, on next year again. So Isn't it um, – I seem to remember the 100K championships are Mont Blanc. Is that right? That is the trail 100K okay. championship. Okay. And yeah. the road one? Yeah, there's a road one, which is in a different place every year. The UTMB, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, that is sort of the de facto World Trail Championship. It's not the official World Championships, but it's the one that everybody sort of knows that if they win that. Sure. It's like the Boston Marathon of, uh, of trail ultras, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's like the Western State 100. Yep. That's not officially the national 100-mile championships in America. I don't think it is. No. No. But everybody knows that if you do it and you win it, that's one, one of the of big that. ones, yep. So yeah. let me ask you the big question here as we uh, move towards the exit here. What everybody's going to want to know is you're a guy with a real job where you got to sit at the desk so many hours a day. You're married. you got young kids, so I'm sure you're out at, uh, at football practice on Saturdays and evenings. And how do you schedule all that? How do you get it all done and train at this level? Running to work is a big factor in that. Other people might think, well, I can't do that. I can't run to work because of X, Y, and Z because I live too far away or I haven't got any showers in work. But I think if you've got a passion for running, you will find a way around it because there was one point in the last 10 years where I didn't have a shower in work. So I found a place just down the road from work where I could get a shower. And then another example is if I'm going out on a day trip on the weekend somewhere, I'll take the running kit with me. And Well, I've always got a spare running kit in the car anyway, so that on the way home, I'll just say to the wife, kick me out of the car and I'll run home from here. Right. So then yeah. I'm not in the car wasting time stuck in traffic. And also when my youngest child, I've got two children, youngest child, he's three next month. But when he was born, I managed to keep fit pushing the pram around and I bought a running buggy, uh, a mm -hmm. baby jog. Yeah. Those baby joggers are godsend. They're fantastic because you don't, lose fitness you can get a really good tempo running pushing one of them right and i found that it only added on 30 seconds to 40 seconds a mile i actually found a local 10k race where the race organizer said i could push the buggy around 
So the two years ago I turned up and I was disappointed because I got my running buggy out of the car and it had a puncture. But then the next year I did it, uh, which was, I think it was June last year. And I think I went there with a bit of a vengeance because I thought I couldn't do it last year because I had a puncture. So this year I'm going to really make up for it. And I went off really fast. I did the first mile in about 5.30. <laughs> but I managed to keep up a good pace and I managed to do a 35-minute 10K with this running buggy. <laughs> it was a bit crazy, really. But, you, um, must, you must have placed, didn't that? I mean, a 5.30 will win most of the races around here. Yeah, I won. I was yeah. a bit embarrassed. <laughs> I, was, I was a bit embarrassed. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. great. See if yeah, I did road, that, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to put the dog in the buggy, right? And that would be better. Yeah. I could put the little baby kid on the dog and put him in the buggy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, so we've been talking for a long time. I got to let you go. I got to move on. Thank so, you. Uh, it was great talking to you. Yes. Keep me keep me in the loop on what you're up to and uh, anything else that uh, any other adventures you're having. All right. Yeah, we'll do. All right, yeah. man. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Hope is a strategy. This is not a post about sales. This is a post about hope. I remember quite clearly walking into the office of a struggling startup as their new vice president of sales. Among the detritus of downsizing, the empty cubicles, extra chairs, and office equipment, was a bookshelf. And on this bookshelf were a dozen or so copies of a book by Rick Page published in the early 2000s called Hope is Not a Strategy. This was a clear sign to me that they suffered from an out-of-control sales process and were trying to figure out how to fix it. The basic tenets of Rick's methodology are that sales is not some magical thing run by magical people. It's quite understandable process that you can learn to manage and predict. And Rick's point and the point of all the speakers and politicians who have used this phrase to effect is that no amount of magical thinking is going to solve the problem. You should figure out what's wrong at the people, process, and technology level and start to fix it to get better. In this context... When they say hope is not a strategy, it simply means stop wishing and start working. And I agree with Rick's premise and most of his methodology points, but I was always bothered by the title. Hope is not a strategy. That bothers me. Because if not hope, then what? Hopelessness? If I logically follow the phrase, don't I end up with there is no hope? That I cannot agree with. Hope is one of the essential elements of any successful person, company, and culture. The belief that things can and will get better enables people to weather storms, to get knocked down, and get up again. The power of hope is what has driven humanity from the branches of our prehistoric trees out to explore our universe. Hope is essential. Hope begins with feeling like you are in control and you make a difference. One of the key elements of hope is the belief that we have control over our lives through our thoughts and actions. The primary thing that enables any of your employees to get out of bed in the morning is that belief that their actions and their efforts will make a difference. If they feel like they are mere puppets in a dance they don't control, 
If they feel like their efforts make no difference, they lose hope. You don't want that to happen. Once they lose hope, they stop trying to make a difference. They may hang around and pick up a paycheck, but they become the walking dead once they lose hope. Hope is purpose. Part of hope is the belief that you can make a difference. And hope is amplified if you believe that difference you are making aligns with a higher purpose. Whether it is helping your company win, helping your customers be successful, or making the world a genuinely better place, hope leads to purpose. And one of the tricky questions I'll ask executives at companies I'm working with is, what would you say your company's mission is? If you ask five different executives and get five different answers, you know the company is misaligned. No one knows the why of the organization. As Simon Sinek famously simplified in his TED Talk, it starts with why. If you have a purpose in your organization that your people can align their personal contributions to, then I would argue that you have a very hopeful organization. An aligned organization is also going to be very effective in its strategy, tactics, and execution because everyone is pulling in the same direction. Hope is the ability to be resilient. Hopefulness in your organization, the belief of your employees that their efforts make a difference, the alignment of every asset with a known and well-communicated purpose, these things will also make your organization resilient. What makes business people suspicious of hope is that Pollyanna nature of the concept, the inferred belief that everything is going to go well. They see that as unrealistic. Any experienced business person knows that not only will there be rocks in the road, but the road is mostly rocks. <laughs> they think that hope is counterproductive because it ignores the fact that business by its nature is hard and full of challenge. They miss the point. Hope less people and organizations give up when there is adversity. Hopeful organizations have the ability to roll with the punches. They expect things to get better. That doesn't mean life is easy. It means you are always looking beyond the challenge to how you can learn from it and how to grow from it. Hope is future-focused in a positive way. As Viktor Frankl proved so well in Man's Search for Meaning, Hope can keep you going when everything else is gone. Hope is cultivated in a positive environment. Hope is cultivated in inherently positive environments. That doesn't mean there isn't adversity. Employees will still be fired. Customers will still sue you. But that doesn't mean you slouch through life expecting to be punched in the gut at every corner. What it does mean is setting and cultivating a positive, future-focused tone in the organization engenders hope. It's not so much everything is great as it is we are all working to make things great every day. Hope is a cultural expectation of positive results. Hope is a strategy. No amount of false and empty positive messages or inspirational posters on the wall can create hope. You can create an environment of hope by systematically shaping the culture of your organization. Do your people know that their efforts make a difference? Do your people know 
the mission of your organization? Is everyone aligned behind a common purpose? Does the organization embrace challenges with the desire to get better? Have you cultivated a positive and future-based culture? I agree that magical thinking and fondless optimism will lead to poor results. Hope, without process, is a recipe for failure. But if you combine the basic, human, powerful seeds of hope with rigorous strategy, tactics, and execution, you'll create a world-beating organization. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Yes, my friends, not only have you run to work, but you have taken a shower and found yourself at the end of episode 4-360 of the Run Run Live podcast. I will continue to train away for Boston. I'm keeping my promise of not running any of the spring races, just focusing on the big race. And that will be my 19th Boston Marathon. My club gets a hotel room at the finish with a massage physical therapist lady we bring in. So if you need a place to take a shower, let me know and we can have a beer together. That's if you're willing to wait until I drag my tired old bones across the finish line. I am still collecting for Team Hoyt, and I'm a little bit light, a little disappointed, so I could use your help. The link is in the show notes. My cross-training project for this summer after Boston is probably going to be to try to climb the 10 tallest mountains in New England. And I'm not sure I can do them all in one season, but Teresa says she's in, so I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. The days are noticeably warmer and longer. I've been getting out in shorts the last couple of weeks. Spring is in the air. I really like spring. It's a hopeful season, a season of rebirth, a season of new beginnings and promise. It makes me think about how lucky I am, how many podcasts I've been able to produce on this journey, how many adventures we've had together, how many great new friends I've made. I'm a lucky person. I really am. I am grateful. Thank you for hanging around with me. Think about what you're grateful for. I bet it will make you smile when you're doing those hill repeats. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Blem and coffee. <clears throat>